Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Steve Lloyd. Steve attended St. Francis Xavier University, where as part of the basketball program, he was mentored by legendary coach Steve Kunchowski. He has coached high school, junior high, and grassroots basketball across Canada, and consulted and assisted with the collegiate basketball program at his alma mater. Steve also served for four years with the senior men's national team. His baseball experience has ranged from the early coaching years in his hometown as a student to consulting with elite programs in the US and Canada. Steve is the author of The Game is Hard Enough and continues ongoing work with coaches, athletic departments and business leaders around North America. His consulting agency, Patch 29 Team Builders, offers programs for team building, culture development and family and player advisement. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. It's a privilege to be with you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. So, love your new book, uh, The Game is Hard Enough, A Guide for Performance Sports Parents. And I absolutely love your title because I'll ask athletes, you know, at any age group, what do you wish your parents understood and what do you wish your coaches understood, uh, you know, even more than they do? And I always hear they forget, my parents forget, you know, even if they played the game or, you know, sometimes my coaches forget how hard the game really is. And so it looks easy watching from the sidelines at times, but when you're out there in the middle of it, it can be really tough. So tell us a little bit about the book, the title, and then we'll dive in and, and uh, have a fun discussion about sports parenting and, and youth sports. Well, I, uh, I've been working with, uh, young people and, and their families for the better part of 40 years in, in a variety of capacities. And, and this book has been a, a compilation of, of workshops and, and dialogues I've had with, with families over the decades. And uh, it's a collection of anecdotes and, and principles and practices, um, just some, some really uh, big lessons I've learned along the way and, and been able to share along the way with families so that they can enhance rather than inhibit their children's development, whether it's academic, social, or athletic, or in their musical pursuits. And um, the game is hard because life's hard and, and it's not getting any easier. And so um, I, I felt that it's time for uh, for us to to share some of these insights with a broader uh, you know broader audience yeah in terms of 
life not getting any easier, Phil and I often talk about, uh, you know, research findings in terms of NCA, you know, student athletes that uh, mental health concerns are just through the roof mm-hmm. right now, you know, 200, 250% increase in, you know, anger and anxiety and depression and, you know, eating disorders and all these sorts of mental health issues. And so I can't even imagine, you know, I, we haven't seen the research yet uh, with, uh, you know, high school student athletes, but I'm sure the concerns are similar. And that's why a book such as yours is so important because you provide so many practical tips, tools, techniques, and strategies, not only for parents, but also athletes and coaches. So everyone can really benefit from this and, and not even athletes, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, student athletes or, or students in, you know, music and other sorts of achievement domains as well. Uh, the pressure is really on kids these days. It, it is. And, um, and one of the things that, that I've had dialogue with, uh, you know, people want to believe because it's easier for them to, rather than take some responsibility uh, for the scenario. They, they want to think kids are different. Well, they're not really that different. Uh, the social constructs are um, our uh, presuppositions and our predispositions to try to uh, escape our children from their responsibilities, from their accountabilities, uh, the enablement that we see, the helicoptering of parents. Um, you know, I, I put it this way the, the other day, which is that, um, you know, the, the concurrent dialectic that, that uh, parents have to deal with, uh, that they want their children to be happy on the one hand, and on the other hand, they want them to be successful and, and, and to be challenged and, um, and, and they want what's best for their kid. Well, what's best for their kid isn't always what makes them happy. And what makes them happy often isn't what's best for them. And if we continue to escape our children from those responsibilities, if they don't face challenges and adversities, how are they going to be even begin to understand how to grapple with life and with sport and with their social relationships and how if they don't grapple how can they learn to persevere and if they can't persevere how do they ever develop any resilience and it goes way back to when they're little kids and when mom and dad refuse to say no or you have to or whatever in in the right way then how can children grow yeah, absolutely. Talk a little bit about the importance of setting standards. And I know in the in the forward, your, your son talks about, you know, it isn't even necessarily the end game for parents to say, okay, here's a high bar and by golly, you're going to hit it or else. But it's more empowering kids to set their own high standards and pursue excellence. What are some techniques for doing that that maybe we're not seeing widespread particularly in in youth sports well phil that's a that's a great question area for hours worth of dialogue the the reality that that i've seen is that uh, a lot of families want to set a goal and reach that goal and it's something that's that's vacuous that's distant that that is um in, in a lot of regards for the child quite inauthentic now, uh, recently, uh, I've had a few of the parents of children I coached 10, 12 years ago 
uh, call me up and say, oh, you must be so, you know, my son had just uh, gotten his first couple of big league assignments at spring training games. And, you know, gets to be a reserve, gets to be in the, in the dugout brushing shoulders with, you know, Joey Votto and, and whatever. And so they're congratulating us. And, you know, you finally achieved your goal. And I, I well, no, that was never our goal. It's never my goal. And Matt does have a goal to get to the big leagues. But the goal that we set for him was to be the best version of his best self. And that had to do with his work ethic, his character, his orientation, his, uh, his, the, the person that he is. And whatever he applied himself to, we wanted him to apply himself to the very best of his ability. Um, I also applied that philosophy, uh, that, that approach when I was teaching. And, and um, you've got student A who is capable of doing this extremely high level of academic work, but sometimes is only applying themselves half of their uh, capacity level. And then you've got another kid who's working his tail off and is getting everything he can out of his capacities. But maybe by the rubrics or the standards set by the curriculum, he's only at a 75% performance level. Now, which of those two is going to be the more successful individual? And, and that's part of the issue for parents is that, is that just like batting average is Satan, a chapter that I, I have in the book, um, the parents are putting the wrong measures to their children's uh, behavior patterns. And they're, they're talking about their, their results rather than enhancing and growing and, and in, uh, reinforcing proper perspectives on their processes. So that's, that's a wordy answer, but, and, and there's much more to say about it than that, but. Yeah. I love that. It, what you said is kind of a, paraphrasing or a rephrasing of what you mention in a certain tombstone inscription in the book can you recall that particular was it on um henry aaron's tombstone where it talks about like judge ju judge mm. me on on the person that i am you know not, the, not a, yeah yeah right. well and, and and of course henry aaron uh learning that lesson from from dr king right well let's let's, let's judge us let's judge ourselves by the content of our character more so than what's on the outside. If we only ever um, value the extrinsic uh, behaviors of our children and don't um, address their core values, don't don't look at the the pillars of their character, and don't don't look at at, at the virtues of their life and and build the virtue. Uh, of, 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 of what life is about and how they intersect with the world around them, the people in their, in their, in their realms, then, then we failed them and they're set up for long-term failure. That's such a good point. Um, <clears throat> I think for any high achiever, there's, it, it's easy to get mixed up between, you know, who I am versus what I do. Mm -hmm. And a lot of athletes as, as both of you guys know, tend to get that mixed up in terms of, you know, I, I actually had a uh, professional athlete say to me once, I know this isn't very, you know, I, I know this isn't logical, but when I don't play well, I, I don't feel like a good person. And mm. so, you know, one of the things that we worked on and talked about is exactly what you're saying, you know, in terms of, 
your, your values as a person. And we talked about you bring those values to your sport. You don't go to your sport to get those values necessarily. You get yeah. to demonstrate those values. And he really liked the idea of, you know, that the arena isn't where I find out my values, you know, uh, as a person. I'm valuable as a person. And then I get to bring that value as a person to what I do. Um, that's really important, I think. And then, you know, also, too, in terms of results, I love the acronym uh, WAR. Uh, most athletes that get those things mixed up tend to uh, worry about results. And so they're at war with themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the results are, are, yeah, I, I think of, uh, of, of some, some dads along the way where they're, they're, they're applauding their kid reaching base because someone made an error. The kid hits a little 17 hopper to first base, the guy bobbles it, the, 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 the guy reaches base, and, well, that's a one-for-one. One. Well, it, it, it really isn't, right? And then the, the, uh, the way that, that uh, one of my professors a million years ago would say, you have to measure, but you better know why you're measuring and what you're measuring, because then there's no authenticity to the assessment. So... Um, and we don't want kids to be. There's enough for them to be fighting against that we don't need them to be fighting within themselves. Yeah, really true. Um, you you touched on a topic there that you bring up in the book, which is this notion of kind of overpraise or overaffirmation for every the little thing. The perils of encouragement. Mm. Yeah, can you dive into that a little bit more? Wow. Um, not everything is a nice play, Johnny. And when uh, when kids make mistakes, they, they know they've made a mistake. They don't uh, they don't value or they don't gain value from mom or dad or whoever else excusing it away. Um, the long term pattern that that develops of of not being held accountable for the consequences that your choices have led to is prevalent in youth sport. Now, parents don't see it that way. They don't see that, that um, you know, you're okay, that, you know, someone else's fault, that, you know, there's a bad hop, there's a rock on the field. Um, they don't see that excusing away as being the same thing in school as saying, well, I'm going to call the teacher. And you're going to get a chance to redo that test because um, I, maybe you should have prepared a little bit better, but you didn't. So now we're going to find a way to excuse your choice instead of you having the consequence. And if you look at that progressive pattern, what it leads to is, is mom and dad, you know, paying for the good enough lawyer that you can find the loophole and this kid's now getting away with crap in the legal system. And then the pattern that it perpetuates is, is, is very precarious. I, I hope I'm not using too many P words there, but it, it's precarious for that child's life, for the life of the people that that child will be associated with for the rest of their life and for the greater good of our society. And, you know, 
we can see lots in the media right now about about a uh, a society sliding down a slippery slope because someone along the way hasn't put up stop gaps to say no we can't allow this anymore yeah it's such a good point that um we tend to uh you know get mixed up with you know support versus enablement <laughs> you don't want to enable these you know bad behaviors or make excuses and and you know accountability is so important um tell us a little bit about your own background if that's okay in terms of growing up uh, i think you grew up in uh, rural nova scotia i did uh, i was born at a very young age yep you were you were at one time the world's youngest person a brand newbie right so um in, I grew up in, uh, my, my dad was in the military, and uh, up until I was 10, we had lived on his uh, armed forces base, and then he retired, and uh, we moved to his hometown in Nova Scotia, and um, there's, there's, there's no way of, of saying it other than we grew up uh, quite financially poor, and um, had a great relationship with my mom, you know, not so much with, with my dad. Uh, and played as many sports as my town would allow us to play. You know, where we were geographically, um, we didn't we didn't have an an indoor rink, and the air was the, the the moisture in the air was quite heavily salted, so we didn't have a lot of outdoor ice as well. So, baseball, basketball, soccer, and track were what I was able to do, and I did did them all to. Uh, the best of my ability, which was limited, and but with, with a, a very, very passionate approach that ended up having to be tempered into some sense of a better direction and purpose. So, Did you have a favorite athlete growing up? Um, I did. Um, I, uh, was I, I was in love with uh, the legacy. We, did, we didn't have cable TV back then. So... Um, we got one and a half TV stations. Uh, we got CBC all the time and CTV sometimes when the wind blew in the right direction. I know these kids with, with instant access on their thumbs to everything. But um, grew up an Expos fan, a little bit with the Red Sox. But but in terms of the legacy of the game, I, I just adored uh, Roberto Clemente and everything that he stood for. My two favorite players were Ted Williams and Jackie Robinson. And so I was able to wear... Uh, whenever I played ball, I was able to wear number nine because I wanted to, I wanted to hit like, like Ted Williams. And I was, I was splinter, but not so much splendid. And, um, and then Jackie Robinson, of course, uh, as you would know, the first number he wore in organized baseball with the Montreal Royals was number nine. So, um, and even to this day, any any team I coach, I will not have a number forty-two on because, you know, that's a legacy number that should be retired everywhere. So, yep. And then uh, tell us about uh, going to school uh, at St. Francis University Athletics. The the uh, the X Men and X Women. The X Men and X Women. St. Francis Xavier. Um, uh, Catholic institution in uh, in uh, Antigonish, Nova Scotia. Um, I wanted to go within Nova Scotia as far away from my hometown as I could. Coach Kinchowski intrigued me as a, you know, a New Yorker. And I, I didn't, 
know him before I arrived there, but uh, he gave me an opportunity to serve with the program. And uh, I was a student there for, for, uh, for four years, uh, somehow ended up graduating, despite my best efforts to, to be a goofball, and uh, stayed around as a grad assistant, worked with the athletic department, and then um, just a, an amazing opportunity to, uh, to grow up um, within the, 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 the confines of, of that school. The only person who didn't really want me to go to St. Effects was my grandmother, who uh, a very rigidly conservative evangelical Christian thought that, mm. that my, wife, my life would be ruined by going to a Catholic school. But uh, little did she know that would be the, the, the first steps on a path uh, that would, would guide me into uh, this life we hope to have of serving others. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about coaches in Coach Konchalski's impact on you just as a human being, as a man oh. trying to find your way in the world and, and how that kind of directed your path. Uh, what, what, can, what can you say? Um, coming out of the legacy of, 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 of family shame that, that I came out of, he became a, a, a spiritual and a virtual father to me um, and is still my closest mentor and friend. Um, he's, he had coached there. He's just retired last year, and he still serves with Canada Basketball as a, a part of their uh, Council of Excellence, and he mentoring coaches all over the world in, his, uh, in his, this next incarnation of his life. He, um, he lives out values uh, more than any man I'd ever known. Um, and, and taught me the, that, that it's possible to, to be who you are and do what you do with, with a level of personal and, and professional excellence that's based on, on the character and values and living out, and, and, and from his perspective, just a, a godly lifestyle. And uh, just, um, I owe him everything. Um, He's the winningest coach in Canadian basketball history and um, is even more humble than he is winning. And, you know, I, I really think that if not for the last two seasons of COVID and stuff like he would have breached that thousand win. Um, and now he's, he's uh, still giving back to the game where, where he's, uh, he's leading um, a foundation in honor of his brother, Tom Kinchowski. I don't know if you, if you, if you know anything about Tom and, and what he's done for the game as a, as a high school scout, but uh, a revered man in American basketball history. And now uh, Super K, as I, I call him, is, is leading that legacy of, uh, and to understand that, that the game is important, but as hard as the game is, there's, there's more important parts of life that, uh, that the game can teach us and, and we can use the game and what he's done with his, his coaching tree, you know, the, the, the young men that have become educational and, 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 and athletic and, and justice and social service leaders around North America is just outstanding. He, uh, he'd be someone that, that your listening audience would just be wowed with. And somehow in 
50 years in Nova Scotia, he still has that Queens, New York accent. I don't know how he's maintained it. Well, he's the, uh, he's the other coach K that people need to learn more about. He, uh, I believe he started coaching at your university in 1975. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, like you said, COVID kind of put a little damper on the, you know, at the end of things, but, uh, what a remarkable man. And, and, yeah. uh, 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 love hearing stories about him. I I tease him now, even now that he's the he's North America's Coach K, whose name we can spell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, much easier to spell. It is much easier. Yeah, um, his brother. So he had the you know back before all the online scouting services. Now that people mm-hmm. go to right and huddle for videos and all of this. He had this this newsletter, right, about yeah. high school recruits, and there was Mike Silski wrote a great book called The Rise about mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant's formative years and kind of the years up to, and, and including part of his rookie year of the Lakers. But he he talked about how I believe that the Bryant family maybe met Konchelski for um, Arby's or some other kind of takeout, and they they noticed that. That um, in the conversation, Tom brought up that he hadn't had a meal at home in over five years because he was just on the road scouting just constantly, all the time. Never got his driver's license. Um, well, and why did you need a car in New York? I guess it wasn't his his point of view. Uh, never got a computer. Uh, well, he did later, but but always did his things on a typewriter, and you know the the yellow scribe pad, the le- the yellow legal pad. And uh, his nickname was Glider, of all things, because he would glide in and out of gyms and never, ever forgot a, a kid's name. So wow, that, is, that would be a, an amazing thing to hear more about. But um, I don't know enough about him to, to, uh, to go on much more than, than my reverence for his brother, who is uh, the, the, the best man I've ever met. So Yeah, he's... Um... Is his brother one of the reasons that you got so passionate about coaching and educating and of trying to solve some of these problems that we've uh, that we've touched on earlier today? Well, what he did is he refined and articulated my passion. I was so competitive and competitive out of uh, of a fragile self worth and um, a, a, a set of beliefs within myself. I had to. I had to win every moment. I had to win every situation. And through the decades, in the early years, begin to uh, see this seed of hopefulness growing within myself through through Super K uh, and through through his guidance and all the mistakes that I would possibly make. And then he would challenge me and hold me accountable to um, and 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 just growing that that sense of a passion in a way that the winning had to be intrinsic, not extrinsic, that, that he's won championships and playoffs and almost a thousand games in his career. He's been to a bunch of Olympics. Um, our group from, from the late nineties was the, the 2000 Olympic team. Now our staff got invited to, to go do other things at the end of 98, but that was our guys. And, and, you know, Stevie and, and Nash and, and the rest of the guys ended up playing a very good Olympics. But along the way, what I, I learned most was 
redirecting that passion from winning games and winning championships to what he lives out, which is let's win these lives. And so he, 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 he brings in a recruit and you put together a, a practice plan. You put together a, a development plan for the young man uh, on the basketball court, but then you couple it with the academic goals and what do you want to achieve in life? And where do you, who do you want to be 10 years from now? Uh, what kind of a man are you now and how are you going to become the kind of man that you want to have as the father of your children, of the husband of your wife? Who, you know, and, and that's where the passion uh, was articulated and, and redirected and, and reshaped and, and molded. And it was, it was in, in that relationship. And, I, you know, I, I'll still I'll still turn to him today for for any question, any concern. And and what's been a, a huge blessing for me and what an honor is that that it's been reciprocated in, in such a way that, that that he's calling me once in a while now. And and he wrote a little blurb at the front of the book. And and, you know, I I don't know why, but, you know, 45 years later, his words somehow surprised me that that you know that it was very meaningful so yeah yeah i love that um so talk to us a little bit about once your your four years are over there and you you know you as you say somehow get through and graduate what came next for you and then um how did that that kind of transition that he was helping you to make which i'm guessing was still a work in progress from kind of focusing on extrinsic winning to to intrinsic winning and and you know focusing on the process rather than individual outcomes um how did that manifest itself in in, in your professional and personal life well for the, for the first uh half decade after after graduating um I, you know you like a lot of young men, I was bouncing around. I was coaching a little bit here, coaching a little bit there, a little bit of baseball, a little bit of basketball, trying to find the right fit, trying to make uh, a situation where my jobs allowed me to to work with young people. And I, I finally tracked my way into working in youth criminal justice in the Canadian justice system. Um, the first... Uh, the first full-time job I had doing that was working in what's called in, in Canada secure custody. So these are hardcore youth offenders, um, maximum sentence of 36 months. So if you've committed a capital level crime, um, that's the, the most sentence. And beginning working with them at the same time, I'm still playing some basketball, playing some baseball and, and trying to figure out how can I, how can I amalgamate all of these things? And, and then began to understand that the reason I was wanting to coach was because I, I wanted to replicate in my life what I had been shown as, as an ideal from, from my mentor relationship with, with, with coach Kinchowski and, and seeing that, that he had been this man through values and consistency and character, um, guiding young men and, and some young women through uh, through their stages of life. And, and so working with youth criminal justice gave that opportunity, although um, to try to work with kids 
with the goal of, of rehabilitating so that their level of recidivism goes down isn't the same as working at the front end before kids are in trouble or when they're in the midst of troubles that we don't see. And so uh, redirected that into some a few years in, in uh, paraparochial youth ministry and, and then uh, moved to Toronto and worked with some, some social service work, um, mostly housing, uh, hard to house singles through some church based organizations met the love of my life and uh, married her, or I should probably be more truthful. She married me and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, and then have, have worked on that path of, of getting a teaching license, teaching for a while, and then into, into full-time coaching for 10 years. And, and now back to teaching part-time and, and consulting and, and doing other stuff with, uh, with parents and children. You, you definitely have a full day. <laughs> well, um, I look at my resume and I, I, I see that it's either, um, it, it can be interpreted as, as the, uh, the jack of uh, all trades and master of none. And a little bit like, it, it looks like Steve doesn't have much capacity to keep a job, but my, my passions have, have been articulated and I, and I'm, almost always been seeking the better fit for how I can serve more wholeheartedly and more uh, authentically. It hasn't been, uh, uh, you know, we, we point out at home that my career path has been like mine. It's been playing in the minor leagues. So there's not much money in it, but there sure is a lot of work and a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, what were some lessons that you you took from that early work in the criminal justice system that translated later on into coaching and teaching? Wow, um, I think the biggest one is that is that if there is early intervention, then there's less opportunity for for kids to have strain and uh, uh, struggled way off the path. I, I think about it if 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 we are going, if we have a, a, a perfectly smooth slope with uh, no variances and no angles, and I try to roll a ball towards you, if I'm one degree off, but you're only 10 feet away, the, the variance is, is not that hard. But if we go out a thousand feet, that one degree is, is, is really quite large. Um, so whether it's in education, whether it's in, in behavior patterns, whether it's in uh, heart attitude, um, this, the, a child's spiritual values about themselves, um, we need more early intervention on speaking truth into their lives. And, and uh, that's a huge lesson from, from, you know, there was a young man, and um, I, I suppose I can pretend it's a, a pseudonym, first name's Darren, who I, I met along the way in secure custody. He was serving a 33-month term, and um, he, had, he had killed someone. What, what had happened was he, had, um, he, he was forbidden by his family to, to take his father's uh, shotgun anywhere. 
outside of the house. I don't know why he was allowed to have it in the house, but he wasn't allowed to take it outside. And so he took it out and he was goofing around with his buddy and somehow discharged the gun while someone was riding a bicycle adjacent to them and wounded the person. And, and somewhere along the way, he had been conditioned to be so fearful of being in trouble with his parents that he ended up reloading the shotgun and killing the wounded bicyclist so that his parents wouldn't find out from them that he had uh, accidentally discharged the, the, the weapon. And, 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 and so, and, and, and th this kid um, somewhere along the way learned lack of remorse, uh, some really abject um, absence of, of, of a sense within himself of, of right and wrong. Now, I don't know what could have gone differently for that kid. You know, he's 14 when he did this. And that event shapes the rest of his life. But if we, if we go back to when he's four or five years old and something changes in his relationship, what, what happens to that kid? Now, that's a pretty extreme example. But that, that sense of early intervention, of, of nipping it in the bud, or, or, or pruning, or, or you know, maybe loosening up the roots so that there's better growth so fruit can be produced. And, you know, so I think that's probably the most important early lesson that I learned through, uh, through justice. Yeah, Jim, in, in your practice, have you found, particularly on the counseling side, that a lot of the seeds for some behaviors that are really hard to change later on and some habit patterns have been have been sowed at an early age, as, as Steve just alluded to? Yeah, I love what Steve said. It's, you know, the earlier the better, um, you know, in terms of intervention and, um, you know, the right words, the right... Um, you know, the right tips, tools, and techniques can make all the difference going, moving forward. And uh, that's why I love the topic of your book, Steve, in terms of, you know, really intervening at, at a young age and uh, to, you know, for parents and, and coaches and, and youth sport athletes, uh, instead of waiting until, you know, high school, college, and beyond necessarily. Uh, mm -hmm. That was tough for me when I was the sports psychologist at Arizona State for about a decade. And, um, after meeting a few times with, you know, particular student athlete, I would always hear, oh, I wish I started this earlier. I wish I did this in high school, um, you know, because everyone's going to hit walls. Things are going to get harder. And if you could plant those seeds, if you could develop some of those skills and strategies at a younger age, it can really make all the difference in the world. So um, it's such a powerful point that you made. Well, the skills and strategies are almost always pointless without the actual core strength there's a there's a writer um i can't think of his name but uh he he talked about this is back in the 80s that truth without relationship is almost always pointless and if we don't have the right relationship with ourselves, the, the the techniques and, and 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 tools and strategies are it's like it's like the they, they work for a little bit, but they don't stick because we Teflon ourselves against them. And if we're, if we're not held accountable in our childhood for 
basic issues of right and wrong. If everything in the in the realm of our behaviors is some version of moral relativism, then how can we have any consistency to our lives? So that's it. That's it. And you know, it's uh, it becomes character defining moments throughout. Oh, it really know. does. I have a I have a, a little wooden block sign up in my off my home off what used to be my home office and with COVID now my wife's working at home full time but it says I may be inconsistent but not all the time so and that then, reminds me of uh, I used to tell student athletes it's okay to procrastinate but procrastinate later yeah well they don't get it <laughs> true yeah so. this it, this topic seems to relate in some ways to, to something else that you bring up in the book, which is um, an inability or at least a reluctance to take any kind of criticism. And, and that, that seems to also tie back to what we were talking about earlier about parents' attempts to escape their, their kids from consequences, from standards, um, from adversity. Can you talk a little bit about critiques, criticism, and the, the, the willingness to, to learn that kind of comes uh, along with that in, in a best-case scenario? Wow. Um, there was a kid that, that played for us um, a bunch of years ago, and the, the, there's a very, very grateful, rewarding ending to the, the, the greater part of this story. This, this kid... Um, was often late for our, this is our high performance teams this is our team that's going to a world championship in 12u at ripkin and a very talented kid um everybody uh in his family thought he was a shortstop he he wasn't for us but um he just there was a terseness with him around his parents and one of the values in our program is that your conduct off the field is more important than your performance on the field. And, and I had had just enough of this, this kid's behavior. And I wasn't at that point where I'm looking for it, but I'm arriving at practice. I had a media thing and I got there just as, as his family had arrived. And this kid was chirping at his mother who had, taken time off of work to deliver him to our practice and he's he's and he's using swear words and and just being derisive towards her and so i i spoke to him at practice okay your job today is is you're going to um you're not practicing you're going to sit here and you're you're being held accountable and if you can't handle that this leads to our pyramid of intervention and we're going to move our way up well later that day this this kid's mom calls me and what right do you have you know and i i'm pretty sure she's doing the head shake but we're on the phone but you can you can hear the head shake through the phone with coach long enough and she's what right do you have to try and talk to my child about how he communicates with me and well ma'am i'm just you know, this is the value, and you signed the covenant agreement. You, the, the character and the conduct matters, and it's a really important, uh, an important function of our culture is that that we treat other people better than we expect to be treated by them. And well, you know, you you have 
it ended her, her last statement was, was you have no right to try to raise my child. And, uh, we're, we're a spiritual family. We grew up in church and, 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 and I'm very grateful for whatever role the Holy Spirit has played in my life, because every once in a while, it just tells you to don't say what you're thinking, Steve. I should practice that more often. But what my thought was, well, someone's got to raise your son. And if you're not going to do it in this regard, well, it was a couple of years later where uh, this kid, he's, he's playing in this high-level academy, and, uh, you know, he's doing all right, and he's just received a college scholarship offer, uh, you know, solid, you know, based, not a lot of baseball money out there because of, um, you know, all the way that the, the juggling has to happen. Uh, but he ends up, uh, and he said, I have to thank you. He said, my parents used to think they were my biggest allies. But when you did that, he didn't say to me, but when you did that for me, when you told me that if you did that again, if I see you doing that, if I hear you doing that again, you are no longer part of this program. I examined my own choices. I examined my own behavior. I know I was only 12 years old and I made some mistakes after that, but my parents are really now the best supports that I could possibly be. And then the kid comes home three years later for summer ball in our hometown and he's playing with them. And the mom and dad walk up to me and she's got tears in her eyes. And she said, our boy is going to get a college degree. And I don't know if it would have happened if, and she brought up the, the incident at the field where I held her kid into account. And, and she said, I didn't like it. You made me, and it made me feel insufficient. But then I realized all we're doing is enabling and entitling our boy and said, all that talk that you had had about empowering and equipping, it just made sense. And so a week later, we put up a chore list and he has to do those chores and he has to start making his own bed and, and, and all of these things. And like, wow, just one incident of holding a kid accountable for his choices that were contrary to the values of our program, uh, gave him an opportunity to grow and change and challenge and imprinted positively on their family and, and hopefully on his career. And on his parenting 10 years from now. So I hope that answers your question, Phil, sort of. No, it does. I think through, that was a, stories, a grand which... slam. That was a grand slam comment. I, I love that. I think kids are craving that. They want to, they want their parents to hold them accountable. They want their coaches to hold them accountable. It shows how much you truly do mm -hmm. love that person. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, I'm going to hold you accountable. I'll, I'll go down that road with you. You know, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to hold you accountable and take care of you as you make these changes. Um, but, um, you know, saying to your kids, you know, Hey, you could act in any way you want or come home at any time you want. They might pretend that feels good or they might, mm -hmm. you know, but man, that tells them that, you know what, I don't care enough about you to, 
you know, to, to, to set these limits. Um, yeah. What a power, powerful story and good for you and good for them for getting it. Well, it, we've, we've lost some families of talented kids along the way. Um, and not to the, and it, it, it's really funny when, when I explain to kids and their families um, who have played in, in programs I've been part of that I, I don't care if we win or lose. The games, you know, I've won a lot. I've been part of, uh, I've been very blessed to be part of three national championships in, in Canadian men's basketball. And, um, you know, and we've been at the Cal Ripken World Series, getting our hats handed to us by the Japanese national team. But we're still there. And and I've gotten to, to be, so whether we win a game or not, and, you know, whether your kid is the shortstop or the, center fielder or the number one or the number three that, that that really doesn't matter are we working together are we in partnership are we as parents and 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 sport and i'm going to use the term even though you don't have to be paid as a sport professional and as a pedagogical leader using three p's there so the teachers and, and, and the, the family and the coaches have to be working in concert for the best interests of that child, for them to be able to have an opportunity to be the best version of their best self. Now, is our goal to, to uh, formulate a plan so that they can follow all of these steps to get to where we think they should go? Or are we trying to create an aspect of, of responsible autonomy within the child, within the young athlete, within the student, within the dancer, so that they are self-determining on the successes and the outcomes of their lives. And are we willing to use their failings along the way toward a sense of greater success? So. Yeah, and that's the difference between a, a, a resume eulogy you know, uh, on the one hand, um, or, you know, resume virtue versus eulogy virtue in the sense that, mm -hmm. you know, character versus like what you were talking about with your, with your own resume. It's, it's, it's really about what you're doing, not what, you know, necessarily shows up on the outside in terms of, you know, uh, on a resume or a Vita. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're, you're, you're bang on Jim. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about two terms that you've used there with regard to, and we maybe use quote fingers around them with failure and success and mm -hmm. societal constructs around those, you know, how we, we link those to external outcomes and, and possibly the danger of always just looking at the result. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very dangerous thing where, where we only think of the final result as being the, the the thing that we're going to count. Um, and it, the process of moving through that journey, the journey is the, is the, is the key. Um, I think of, of, of Edmund Hillary and his, and his Sherpa, whose name I can't remember, getting to the top of, of, of Mount Everest. And, and we talk about that pinnacle experience, but it's, it's the climb and it's the staging and it's, it's the, the pausing for, for uh, further preparation and, 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 and perhaps some introspection along the way. 
And at any point, that, that can fail miserably. Now, what we're talking about here is, is the sense that, that the outcomes we're working towards have to be about uh, being excellent as a person and, and the lessons we learn along the way um, as, as that journey carries through is, is, is how we're going to, um, to journey. Now, I've, I, I've got about a hundred million thoughts going through here and I'm losing kind of a train here. So what I'm trying to, to say is that we have our children who, who are growing up with marks and grades and scores instead of the authentic benchmarks along the way. If we develop coaching patterns that uh, teach the value of the process, then our kids are going to be much better off. I tell the story of teaching junior high, and, and I, what I don't tell about is the number of parent calls and emails I got from this, uh, the parents of this particular student group who thought, well, that's stupid. The marks should matter most is the mark that should only matter is the final mark because that's going to replicate what the business, you know, they're going to be in business. They're going to be in the workforce later. And the only thing that matters is the final product. And I, I pointed out, well, there's some things along the way of your business that you have to pay attention to the process of your ethics, the process of your, your practices and things like that. And so with this particular group that, I had to convince the parents that it was a value thing. We assigned a hundred marks, a total of a hundred marks to a sense of, of this is the, the topic that you're going to be writing about. And so the final essay mark, the final thing, their finished product, they were going to get a score out of 15 marks. Well, what's the, well, that, that's only 15 out of 100. So how do you get there? And so we put we set a, a series of benchmarks and key stage outcomes along the way that you know. So you get this set of value for your uh, brain mapping. You're con you're coming up with concepts, ideas, and and you get a higher value for including things that you probably won't include in your final product. But I want you to. You know, and by that time at the grade eight, nine level, I'd been also uh, realming with them, working within the realm of thesis and antithesis to come to some sense of synthesis in their thinking. So developing those key stage outcomes along the way was essential. And they began to realize when we'd done this a couple of times that by the time they're doing their final product, it's pretty easy to get a great result in that realm if they've done all the work beforehand, you know, um, and in the, in the realm of sport, what we, I started doing when my son was nine, um, he's 26 now when he was nine and I started coaching him with his declaration of, I want to play in the big leagues. We began thinking, uh, well, it doesn't matter if you're the best nine year old, it doesn't matter if you're going to be the best 12. We're in a, we're, Calgary is a, is a big city in Alberta, but it's a small 
It's a small marketplace in the world. So we had to start looking at being future ready. And future ready means that our key stage outcomes along the way were going to be about process and not about results. And so to, to understand that and to apply a work ethic and an orientation and, and to never, ever, ever allow him to be part of a program where it wasn't fun and there's not joy. And, you know, if it becomes, if the grind is actually a grind, it's no wonder so many kids quit the game. So we got to, you know, we got to give the, the purposefulness and, and the process back to the children and not make it mom and dad's plan, but make it the kid's passion. And if we can focus on the right things, you can't measure, you, what's the saying? You can't fatten a pig by weighing it. So, but we better make sure that we are weighing along the way, but the way to fatten it is to feed it and feed it the stuff that it needs to, to be able to grow. Super well said, you know, we're all, we're all misled by destination and, and the joy, like you said, whether it's mountain climbing or, you know, the process in, in sports is, is the joy is in the walking, the joy is in the doing. Um, and, and we're too worried about the, the reward instead of, you know, focusing on enjoying the work and, and, uh, and, and, and development. Mm -hmm. um, it's so it's satisfying to see a kid just go out and play. When Matt was little, we, I, I, I think I write about, well, I do, I know, I, I write about it in the book a little bit, the two Matts when he was little. You know, he was, when, when, when we're practicing, he, he had been around some of our national team and, bas and, and, and uh, our college basketball process, so he knew work ethic. He knew focus. And so he knew how to practice because he had been immersed in it and it become you know, sitting at the dinner table with college athletes and we're talking about this stuff, it becomes an inherent part of his intrinsic nature. And so I give a lot of credit to those guys for, for being wonderful, unintentional mentors for him. But and, and our practices were full of fun stuff too. I mean, we, and, and competitive stuff. And, you know, let's look towards making these refinements so that we can be even more excellent. And, at the same time, he would come home after our optional, and being a teacher allowed me to practice every day with as many kids who wanted to come. And, and, and so they would come over to the, to the house and have lunch, and, and, and they would go play. But then when mom came home, the hat went on backwards, and he was the kid. And mom, can you throw me some divers? Mom, um, and he would get his, his older sister, she's 33 months older, he would bring out we didn't have the little cell phone things for our kids back then because well, they didn't need to be slaves to that. So he would, he would bring out the video camera and he said, I'm going to get some ESPN. I'm going to do some, some plays of the day. So mom, throw me some divers. Mom can let's play wiffle ball. Let's, let's do home run derby. And there was always joy. And, and it's, it was, and, and I got to see that with so many kids. When, when I, my high school basketball teams would love coming to practice, and some of them for the work, and some of them for the play, and almost all of them for the camaraderie, but there's a couple of kids who, you know, five years after they graduate high school, 
I see, I see them at a, a game with their younger siblings. He said, Coach, you know what I loved most about coming to practice was when you made fun of me and you said this, and it this, and then every couple of weeks the same thing would come up and we would just shake our heads because, Coach, you're not that funny. But it's it was just so – it was the happiest time of my life. And I wish more sports teams, especially for performance guys, got it, that the kid has to have joy in the journey. It's such an important point. The, the, the misconception there is that, you know, once I start playing well or once we start winning as a team, then we could have fun. Well, yeah. you know, you need to have fun first, um, and, and that needs to be at the core of what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is a lot of grunt work, you know, in terms of – you know, there's more grunt work than glitter in, in terms of becoming a champion. Uh, yeah, there is. And, and along the way, if we can catch them being good and, and, and just, hey, wait a second here, Adam, you just did this, right? And sometimes it's about the game, but more often it's like, you know, we would give a kid some random award we would make up for being the best teammate or the best friend he could possibly be. We would surprise them with it. Um, we, before we started recording, we talked about um, our mutual friend, Duff Gibson, whose kid I got to coach. And we were on our way. Duff was part of our staff at, because we were, we were the first year we were at a World Series where there's no host family. So we're staying in a dorm. And my uh, assistant coaches and stuff, I didn't, I didn't want them to, to have to be 24-7 with the boys. So myself and Duff and another uh, gentleman that, that, that I recruited into our program were going to be our dorm supervisors. So we're on our way to Missouri for the world championships. And uh, I had arranged to stop at Iowa Western Community College with Mark Reardon, uh, who is my son's JUCO coach. And Mark and I have become remarkably close friends. I, I think of him as, uh, I think of him as a brother, except I like him. And, uh, and uh, um, so he let us practice at, at, at Iowa Western on our way to Missouri. And we're at the end of practice. I got permission from Mark to do this, but I had Duff and, and Lane fill up. Uh, it was Lane's idea, actually, but uh, had them fill up about 300 water balloons. And we did, it's a smoking hot day, Missouri, and coming from Calgary, where it's not that hot and it's never humid. We, we, we decide to end practice. We don't tell the boys. Okay, boys were taking BP on the field. Uh, and they go, oh, more BP. Well, you got to hit this. And so we're tossing water balloons, and they're doing water balloon BP. And, okay, so you got to hit it. And I'm trying to convince them they can hit it hard enough that they don't break the balloon. And so they're swinging their, out of their rear ends, and we're having a blast. And, you know, there's still kids who – five years, seven years later, think that's the most wonderful baseball experience they've ever had. And we're on our way to playing the best teams in the world. (laughs) It's just, you have to sometimes be like C.S. Lewis writes, uh, be surprised by joy. And and it's just, it's so fun. And we, 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 we can't, we can't make it work for these kids or they're going to quit. 
Yeah, the, a, a great example of, you know, the uh, on the other end of the continuum, and, and I've shared this story with Phil a bunch of times, but actually worked with a minor league player, and it was uh, 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 during our first session, uh, he, he said, you know, man, when I was, I said, what do you love about baseball? And he, he said, man, when I was a kid, I used to pray every night that it wouldn't rain the next day so I could play mm -hmm. baseball. And I said, how about now? And he said, I pray every night that it will rain tomorrow so I don't have to play baseball. Wow. And because he lost his love of the game and, you know, there's all the pressure, the stress, expectations, you know, war, uh, worrying about results, all those kind of things. Um, and it just wasn't fun showing up at the field because, you know, everyone's pointing fingers and you know, everyone lost the plot. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, is getting back in touch with you know what do you love most about the game and fall and and you mentioned earlier it everything is really comes down to relationships with you know like you said with yourself and with others and and once he 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 fell back in love with himself and the game and his teammates and and you know and and really started <coughs> playing with that love of the game then everything started falling back into place where, you know, again, it was backwards in his mind. Once I start getting the results, then I could go back and, you know, fall in love with the game. And so, um, and I, and I love those examples of coaches that will, you know, it, when I was at Arizona state, you know, the swimming coach might say, okay, you know, end of practice, we're going to have a water polo match, you know, or, you know, in on the baseball team, Hey, we're going to play, you know, uh, a game of ultimate Frisbee. And, those things just are, you know, are so important just to be able to let your hair down and have fun with each other. And that's the thing that I hear so much from ex-athletes is they miss that camaraderie. And so, um, you know, it's a really is about that journey and, and being together throughout all those ups and downs. And um, what, what, a, what a treat that is when coaches make it as fun as possible and add those fun little wrinkles. Well, if, if we really want our wards, if we really want our, our children, our students, our athletes to become the best version of their best self, somewhere in, the, in that journey, they need freedoms and permissions to actually do that. And at the same time, in, in that same way, there's a dissonance between parents wanting what's best for their kids and parents also wanting their kids to be happy. To be the best version of your best self also means you need to be taught the value and, and the process of being, instead of being the best player on your team, which is what so many parents crave because they've, you know, somehow are trying to fill a gap that they weren't able to achieve in their youth or, or their young adulthood and they're compensating for something, uh, for their children to become the best player for their team. And, and that's, that's a tough dialogue because, you know, hey, Marty, um, your kid's – his best role on this team is to maybe sit over there and encourage his teammates in this time and then be prepared to, to come in and, and give his best effort or her best effort in this scenario to play a role. And, and that's – one of the things I'm – and I, I didn't make up that phrase that, uh, that I just used – uh, Mark Reardon said to me when my son left Iowa Western that he adored Matt for being always committed to being the best player for the team. He said it didn't matter that whether Matt was or wasn't the best player on the team, but Matt never needed to be that. 
Matt always wanted to be the best player he could be. And his competition wasn't against all the other guys and against the team they were playing, but his competition was to be the best version of his best self in every moment. And when Mercer talks about him having been the kid who never took a pitch off in practice or a game, well, that's really rewarding to hear as a dad because that tells me that when my son marries the love of his life, who he's known since she's in 10th grade, he's in 11th grade, and when they have kids, I don't have to fear that that young man is going to ever walk away from responsibility in those relationships or that he's going to give up on someone else because he's developed that sense of, of, of wholeness within himself through sport and through the values that, that these people in his life have, have, have guided him towards. It's, and and to, to, to be part of that with, with other people and with uh, other kids is an awesome responsibility and, and, uh, and it's just a privilege. Well, it's great teamwork and leadership by example, first and foremost. And then I love what you're saying. You know, it's, I don't know if you're going to be the best player on the team, but you could be the best person on the team and everyone mm -hmm. should be striving to be the best person on the team. Then be a superstar in your role. You might not be the yeah. superstar of the team. And then I like what you said too, is, you know, and that's what thinking gold and never settling for silver is all about mm -hmm. is being the best version of your best self, like you're talking right. about. Um, and if everyone's doing that as, as a collective, that's, you know, what, look out, that's pretty yeah. unstoppable. Well, I, I adapted some of, of what I read from you years ago in, 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 um, in this idea that I used to workshop with teams and parents, that there, there is an A in team. Or, sorry, there's an I in team, and it's in the A-hole. And, uh, <laughs> right? And, well, and it's funny because so many parents are, well, my kid would never be that kid. Well, okay. All right. Let's, why don't you ask him? Why don't that, you ask her? That reminds yeah. me, I had a, one, one, uh, uh, one college student athlete recently said, he said, you know, we all need to be an asset to the team, not an a-hole on the team. <laughs> <laughs> See, brilliant, right? How words, words carry so much meaning. And we, kids don't know enough words and, 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 and the power of them, right? The, the, the Bible says that, that the, Life and death is in the power of your words. And, and uh, we can breathe so much life in how we communicate if we do it honestly and authentically and consistently. Well, so. both you and Phil are the best wordsmiths. I love, uh, and you have an, did you study uh, English? Was that? I, I, I studied uh, literature and history. And from where, you know, with the British um, background that both of us have, we speak English. I know that you had to grow up speaking American. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, Phil, say more about that. I love that. What was the quote again, Steve? That uh, uh, words about the power of words. The power of words. Uh, the life and death is in the power of your words. Wow. So, Phil, you were going to you you have something to say about that? I hope. Yeah, I don't know. I think um, we're just from the Bible, you know, talking about how we can lob flaming arrows at people <laughs> that are not actually arrows or on fire. Um, but yeah, as you say, it's, uh, I think, to um, 
recently I, I, I saw something from Jordan Peterson and he said, you know, if you can, if you can speak well and you can write well, then you'll be formidable or unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, uh, that's definitely true. And that's why it's so much fun to, to wax lyrical with you about all of these themes today. Um, speaking of words, what I was actually going to say was there was a powerful example of what Jim always says that the most powerful words we'll ever hear are the ones that we say to ourselves. And in your book, you give this example of when your son was struggling with self-talk, and I believe he said something. His conclusion at the time was, in the heat of the moment, I just suck as a hitter. Mm-hmm. Can you take us inside that a little bit and then kind of extrapolate that to to just the, the bigger one thing of those, self-talk? One of those um, moments you can't plan. You, you see it in a screenplay, and you think, well, there's no way I could ever write that. Um, he was four, he, he was just turned 15 uh, in, in the jurisdiction that we played in. The 14s and 15-year-olds play in one division. At that time, it was called Bantam. So now it's been reframed as U15. And the year before, in the, in the Provincial Elite League, he had hit like 450 or something and, and was just – and I was, had an outstanding year, and, and through the course of the winter, he had the, the, one of the coaches, the high, the the sixteen to eighteen U coaches, had taken him aside and said, you know, you're going to be this kind of player. You're going to have to hit with more loft power, and tried to change up everything that Matt had always done. And and this guy Trevor didn't realize that everything he had ever done was not things that he had done. It was part of his, what we call our creation identity. This is, this is who you are as an athlete, as a player, as a temperament. And so it got to be mother's day. The season started, you know, the team traveled to a couple of places and, and as little authenticity as I put on youth level statistics, he was hitting about 220. And it wasn't even that good. He just wasn't hitting anything. He was tr- trying to pull everything, trying to loft everything into the outfield. And and we're driving home from Edmonton to back to Okotoks, which is about a three-hour drive. And about halfway, there's a, a town called Red Deer, which has got a, a pull-off we, where we would get some food. And, and Matt had been asleep. And, you know, I don't know if you have teenage boys, um, when they get their driver's license, sometimes if you if you coach them along the way and driven with them a lot, you realize that you're terrified of them getting their driver's license because you've never seen them awake in a car. So he had been asleep and woke up and was eating his food and he was sullen. And he's he's typically not that. He he uh, we we make a practice at our home of of not dwelling on the games and what's happening what's about to happen is always more important than what's what has happened but he was sullen and so i asked him you know you are you doing okay and he he didn't answer i said okay well if you want to talk about anything i just want to make sure you're okay and and he did this giant heave we've all heard from a teenage boy and he just blurts it out i suck as a hitter and i at that point i i I didn't exactly know how to respond to that because in my heart of hearts, I knew that I had an answer for it, but he didn't, he wasn't asking for an answer. He was needing to find a better question. 
And I think that's a problem so many of us have with our parenting, our coaching, our teaching, is we try to prescribe answers for our kids instead of helping them lead themselves to a better question. And if they're going to be autonomous, they're going to be self-determining, they need to know what questions to ask themselves. So I just sat there driving quietly and I looked over at them as, you know, as best you can while you're driving and, and just did one of those, you know, hmm. And then say, did you hear what I said? I suck as a hitter. And, and at that point, I knew that giving him an answer wasn't going to be the answer. So I, I encouraged him with a leading statement, which was, well, that would be dangerous to talk yourself into that. And then I asked him, why do you think so? And then, you know, blah, 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 blah. He said, well, those are results. What's really the problem? And he said, well, and he said, well, if you, Matt, were your coach, based on what you've seen Ramon do and me do and this new guy Alan talk about, what would you talk, and he, and he went over a few things, what would you say to yourself? What would you say to that player? And, and he started going on. I said, well, so what are you really saying? He said, I guess what I'm really saying is I need to be the player that I'm designed to be. And I said, well, what, what will that take? And he determined an answer that I was able to then, as the dad who has to drive around and do this stuff, was able to um, manufacture a plan uh, or a, not a plan, but a, a practice schedule for him to be able to do a little bit of extra work. And then the new coach who plays a significant role in certain aspects of the book, a guy named Alan Cox, who's doing youth baseball in South Carolina now, maybe the best youth coach I've ever known that no one in America, well, very few people in America know, but, um, you know, that's when their relationship took off and started entrenched. Uh, and now 11 years later, Alan's still a significant part of Matt's life, but he was able to rescue his own season and not statistically, not results-wise, but he, it finally all clicked for him. All the things that we had talked about and tried to implement over the years, he internalized um, and let it, let it free within himself. And then he, now at the end of the year, my God, he, 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 went, he raised his batting average from, from Mother's Day weekend to the end of the season, which was the end of all or middle of August to 470. Now that that's a streak to get on now because he began to use the whole field. He started hitting headline head high line drives and was the best player in Western Canada in, in the 15 U group, according to the other coaches. I know I'm not gonna, I don't play that game where we compare. We don't dare to compare, but, uh, um, it was pretty neat lesson, and that story was able is for me was an articulation of all these things that I believed along the way that came to some sense of fruition in that one articulate moment. Now, if I had done the stupid thing, which is tell him no, 
you're a great hitter. We're going to excuse these things. Or, you know what, let's go somewhere where you can have success. You know, one of the, I, I like to use the tombstone reference. One of the things I, 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 I use as a, as a catchphrase is, do you want me to tell you the truth or do you want me to make you happy? Right. And, and so I, in that moment was able to confront my own son, who was also a player I'd coached since he was eight or nine into, I was able to confront him with the reality of he needed to tell himself the truth. And the truth was you weren't doing what you wanted to do. Now let's go to a deeper truth. Why aren't you? And what are you going to do about it? Because it's up to you. Like, I don't know if you, if you remember, uh, is it George Raveling, who was a the mm-hmm. great coach? Um, this has stuck with me since my sophomore year of college when, when Coach K played us a record. Back when we had to put these little uh, – you're not old enough, Phil, to know these things. We had these cassettes we had to put into machines and then plus uh, play, you, you know. But if it is to be, it's up to me. If it is to be, it's up to me. And parents don't let their kids struggle. Without the struggle, how can there be strength? And I'm going to tell you, my, my son's capacity as a professional athlete right now was linchpinned on those moments of, of discord that he was obliged to work through on his own with some affirmation and some encouragement and some empowerment from his parents, but it was him that did it. And we, we obliged him to do it. Wow. Yeah, it's easy to want to, as a parent or as a coach, to want to take away that discomfort or that pain instead of sitting with it. Um, and then getting to the deeper truth, like you said, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I get a kick out of your saying, I, I used to tell uh, clients or, uh, and I still do, I guess, uh, you know, when I need to prepare to challenge them on something that you want me to be nice or do you want me to be helpful right now? Yeah, <laughs> so. Right. Because the, there's a dissonance yeah. and it, it's true in our professional worlds. It's true in our academic, especially in our, in our academic worlds where teachers have been disempowered from holding kids accountable and, and parents don't know that they're complicit in it. Yeah. Unless, and, and, and that's what I would challenge parents is, you know, it's okay to do everything for your kid and take care of your kid and, uh, you know, and, and, and make sure there's no struggles for them. Only if you can guarantee that you could do that for their whole life. Mm. Yeah. Well, we don't, we, we don't have that kind of money. Well, and we're not going to, you know, hopefully we're not going to live longer than them either. So eventually they're going to have to learn how to take care of themselves. And so that's what is a neat example is you provided the safety and security for your son, you know, and with the asking and answering good questions, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of it, I I agree with you. A lot of it comes down to what questions are you asking? Like, you know, on a golf course, what does a good shot look like here is a better question than what if I miss Mm -hmm. the fairway, you know? Well, the safety that you're talking about that we have to provide our children is an environment of exploration and, and opportunity and, and risk. The risk-taking environment from a provision-giving network is essential. Now, if they don't feel comfortable taking authentic risks, then they're not going to grow. But safety from risk is not the answer. Safety to risk 
is the pathway. And and that's a perfect metaphor for sport and life is playing safe isn't playing at all. No. And and so you have to take risk, and that's where courage comes in. Yeah. And and so yeah. that's such a key point. Well, what we talk about on on the on the baseball field with our with our little guys is is you have to play the ball, or the ball will play you. Yeah, so no. true. Well, this has been wonderful. Um, we want to be respectful of your time, Steve. So is there maybe one more theme from the book that we haven't discussed that you, you'd like to leave listeners with? Uh, well, I could I could be the jokester and say, um, just guarantee me another half a million sales, and then I'll be in the Jim Aframau uh, realm. <laughs> but, um this has been this has been really wonderful. Um, the principles of of, of being uh, a parent that helps children, helps their own children and the children of others. It takes a village to raise a child, and, and we really are in a world where we need to be together in in this in this um, this purposeful journey. Um, that we we need to take it seriously. We need to back away from patterns of escaping and entitling and enabling and, and really think through what we need to provide for our children and as much so what we need to not provide for our children so that they can be empowered and equipped to be the best versions of their best self. And, and um, whether it's, whether or not, my kid makes it to the big leagues or, or not, whether our ch child dances at the Bolshoi, which I guess bad reference right now because no one wants to go to Russia, um, but, or, or whether they become a concert pianist or um, a Rhodes Scholar, doesn't matter nearly as much as it does that they can fully realize their full capacity in everything that they are so that it imprints on everything that they do. So wow. I think that would be my concluding comment. I hope I didn't pontificate too much on that, but <laughs> no, perfect. As a, as a, as a non-Catholic. <laughs> Perfectly said. Um, tell listeners where they can follow along in your journey and where they can find the book. Oh, um, I have a, a website under development called The Game is Hard Enough. I also do consulting work uh, through Patch 29 Team Builders, um, and so they could reach me through the through, through the website. Uh, the game is hard enough. Dot something. Dot org. I can't remember. I'm not the tech guy. The book is available for purchase on Amazon.com and Amazon.ca. And um, uh, if 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 a situation where you would like the book, but you can't afford to buy it or can't justify spending on it, um, please be in touch with me through the website and, and we'll make sure that that this uh, a very valuable tool can get to your hands. And, and you know, we're, we're not about profits here, but uh, um, well, as you know, Jim, it's, the calling is, is to help others and not to necessarily uh, get rich doing it. So Absolutely, you, you can edit that so it doesn't sound as goofy as it just. No, I, I love that, and um, you need to be in. You know, it, it's all about doing the right things, and mm -hmm. um, and everything else will fall into place. And make sure to follow Steve uh, on Twitter. I love your uh, Twitter page at uh, Steve Lloyd 
0-9. Right, and then the, the, I have another Twitter one called The Game is Hard Enough. And, yeah, at Game Hard Enough. Yeah, that's right. They had to keep the letters short. Thanks for uh, thanks for hitting a grand slam for us today. I learned a lot. I know Phil learned a lot, and um, so many gems for our listeners. So we really appreciate you, Steve. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.